Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Mark Boris and this is Straight Talk. There are two sides to life. There are moments of great joy and, of course, balanced out by periods of great sadness. It's easy to say in the abstract, but the truth is, this is, at some points, very hard, almost inconceivable to accept. And in that vein, I had the great privilege to sit down today with Danny Abdullah, the father of six, now seven children. Two years ago, Danny's family was forced into the public eye after a drunk driver killed their three children, Sienna, who was eight, Angeline, who was 12, and Auntie, who was 13, alongside their niece, Veronique, who was 11. That's four kids on their way to get some ice cream in Oatlands in Sydney's west. The nation felt the horror that shook the Abdullah family and then immediately it was followed by anger. But then Danny and his wife, Layla, publicly forgave the driver and asked the nation to turn their anger into forgiveness. Where there's a great tragedy, there is also a deep, deep beauty. And that's what I got out of this particular podcast. After listening to Danny today, I understood, and hopefully you will too, why there is such a great power and strength in forgiving the seemingly unforgivable. Danny Abdullah, welcome to Straight Talk, mate. Thanks, Mark. Sort of feel like apologetic to some extent that I'm only just getting to speak to you about something that happened just on two and a bit years ago. Um, it's probably the wrong word to use, but I'm fascinated with how resilient people can be and how people deal with crisis and then to some extent can turn crisis around into opportunity. You had six kids? Yep. I just like you just to take me through how your family rolled. You know what was the life like with your six kids, and of course, Bridget Saker yep. and her child as well. It was like part of a bigger family, your family, your group, standard family. family. Yes, yeah, standard family, correct. As they say, standard walk family. I'm I'm from one of those walk families, and we yeah. all hang out together. Cousins, uncles, aunties, hundred percent. We're all together, eat together, hang out together. You know, cause trouble together, the whole thing, you know, a whole lot of us, and laugh and dance and sing and drink. Um, but take me back. What was it like? So I was a – I've got a personal as a dad. I've got an established business in construction and people used to tell me, you know, what's your job? 
I jokingly used to say I'm a full-time father, part-time worker. My wife and I got married 2004. We had uh, six children under the age of nine. Wow. One after the other. So it got to a point where I just uh, got immune to that, 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 that noise and the traffic and couldn't wait to get home. And I was a real active dad. Actually, I'd done a trip with my daughter and my son, um, you know, those Thai camps. We took just us three, you know. And, and oh, they went on Thai camps with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah I cool. t- took them and, and I was, you know, travelled Disney World and we were just always, I was an active dad. And we had just come back from Queensland at the time and I was at Terrigal actually and my son was in year eight and, you know, I grew up in Western Sydney, sort of a bit of a rough place at the time and I was worried about my son and I remember saying to my son, I was walking through Terrigal Beach and I said, son, you know, the choices you make daily determine the man you become. And I was explaining to about him and his uncle. I've got a family friend that ended up in jail for 10 years and I said it was the daily choices he made when he was younger. And same with me. I've got six kids, established company. And he understood that. And, and I remember four days later, the kids went for a walk to get some ice cream and there were seven children. There was Anthony. My, these are my kids, Anthony, Angelina, Liana and Sienna. My niece and nephew, Mabel and Charbel, and Bridget's daughter, Veronique. I told them to go for a walk and get some ice cream. It's funny because they were walking just on the footpath and next minute I get a phone call that no parent should ever get. Who rang you? Mabel, which is my niece, rang her mum. She ran to the car, quick, 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 let's go. I jumped in the car with my sister-in-law, Anya, and we drove down. I'm driving there thinking, oh, Anthony or Charbel, the boys must have crossed the road. Something must have happened. But I came and I just saw a car just hit seven children at 130 k's on impact. And there was my daughter, Liana, and my Mabel. They were the only ones that were conscious. There was five kids on the floor and four had died instantly. And it was horrendous. I remember I was coming up to the to the scene and one of the guys saw me. I was, there was only two people that had just rocked up. I, I was a third. Passers-by. Yeah, passers-by. They just came, they seen all this. And to, to see something like that, where do you go? Who do you huh. go to? And one of them raced over to me and said, man, he was from the neighbourhood. He goes, Danny, bro, thank God you're here. He goes, mate, we need to find out who these, pa- these parents are. I said, mate, these are my kids. And he, he was taken back at the time. When you, when you were driving there towards what you knew was an accident mm. as a result of the phone call, what was your physical state? I was going there to see, uh, you know, assess and fix. You know, I'm a, a dad. Yeah. We fix problems. Yeah. And um, I was racing over there just to say, okay, what's going on? Something's happened. What do I got to do next? Yeah. So when I got there, it was actually totally different. Did you feel faint or did, was there any physiological – the reason I ask you the question is because I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes and I can't. Look, you don't – I didn't think I was going to respond this way, to be quite honest. Um, 
I got there, I was in a, obviously a state of shock. You see your kids dead. Huh, you okay. see Bridget's daughter dead, gone. Um, what did I do? I walked past them and I just kept on saying to myself, their vessels, their souls aren't there. Their vessels, their souls aren't there. They're not there. Their souls have gone. So I didn't have to, you know. Then my wife comes, huh. the car behind me, and she responded. She just got on her knees, started praying, our father, our Mary, our father, our Mary at the time. And I just kept on walking, looking, thinking, okay. It's one thing when you, you know, I realised you, your child gets hit by a car, you get on your knees, you can focus. But when you've got four people, four children dead in front of you, it's just difficult. You go to this, it's it's hard because you go to this child, you think, okay, wait a minute, I need to, I, I backed away, go to that, and, and you don't know where to go. And then I just, I, I got to a point where I just surrendered. I said, God, this is bigger than me. I, I surrender this to you. And where did you get that from? I mean, because like you, it was like an out of body experience. It was like my myself. I just came out of my body. I looked at this whole thing on a top view, and I just realized, wait a minute, this is so much bigger than me. And I just surrendered, and then I started going into that. Okay, what have I got control of? Diana, Mabel, Layla, my wife. The ambulance kept coming. Police came. They made it a crime scene. Layla, get in the ambulance. Liana, come on, take Liana to the hospital. She was shattered, cut on her face. Get my bell, get, go to the hospital. And at the time, and I remember Layla said to me, please make sure they come to the hospital. I said, don't worry, I promise. But she went in the ambulance and left. I had to get her out of there. And. Do you get angry? Was there any anger? There was the anger, yes. But at that. At that stage, there was a bit of anger, but but the thing is, you know, when you have a lot of kids, you're the guy that has to keep everyone calm and make sure everything's okay. And I was just, I couldn't take the dad hat off that I've always had on. And that's, um, you know, and if you knew me before I had kids, if someone had a problem, I'd fix it. And that's the, you, you, as you grow and you, you realize I had to keep my dad hat on. And as soon as I got the kids in there, they put the, they, they covered they put the tape, the police crime scene. And then I realised they were gone when the police, I could see from a distance, they were just covering each body with the blanket. I went to the hospital. Did the ambulance took the other four children to the hospital? Yep. The other three children, yeah. You have had a background in martial arts and sometimes we wonder why we do martial arts. Um, we always say it's because we like the exercise and it's good for us. But secretly, you know, we also think one day we might have to use it. You never know. Hopefully not. How do you keep that dad hat on and act responsibly and act as a leader in the family and keep everybody calm and at peace when you've got the conflict on your side, you knowing you could probably make do some damage to the person, you know, who's caused all this? I was in a place of shock at the time. Yeah. You don't realise, I think was the last thing, when shock subsides, you, you're more thinking, okay, what the fuck's going on here? Yeah, totally. What's going on? And you're trying to see, observe, and okay, this has happened now. What do I do next? You, you know, I, and even I remember one of the guys goes, the driver's up there. I'm not going to race up to the driver and I've got my kids in front of me. Yeah, yeah. 
you can't. You, you think, okay, if someone told me that how it's going to happen to me, oh, mate, I would have said, listen, if that happened to me, I would have done this and this yeah, and yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. But when you've got your kids in one hand and the driver up there, you just didn't, you, you don't want to leave your kids and and you just, yeah, it was a place of shock at, at the time. And then all I could think of was my other kids. It was like I've lost half my family. I don't want to lose the rest. Where does this come from? Um, you said earlier that you would describe yourself as a part-time worker, part, part-time construction. Full-time father, part-time worker. A full-time uh, and yeah. full-time father, right? Is that a sense of duty that Danny Abdullah has or is it beyond a sense of duty and it's something you actually love it? I mean it's, it's the thrill of your life. Man, look, yeah, it is a thrill. I, I love kids. I've always have. I've I've grown up. I was a juvenile as a kid. Always in trouble. Um, I started, you know, martial arts back then. And you you learn pretty quick that you know, um, you got to hustle, and nobody really loves you. And the only ones that love you is your kids. And and it sort of taught me it's just the only greatest investment is your family. And that's that's how I probably got there. Where did you go to school? Which grade? I, I went to. Um, I went to Blacktown. Yeah. I went to a school in Marion called Holy Family. Yeah. Was it a De La Salle school? Or no, it was Morris? a Catholic school. And then I, I tried to – I got into – I got kicked out of a couple of schools as well when I was a kid. Was that because of the Lebanese – because I went to St. John's Lakemba. De La Salle school in Lakemba. And there was always a conflict between the Lebanese and the non-Lebanese and to some extent, I'll be honest, like I probably can say that these days, 50 years later, that a lot of the teachers who were, you know – Aussie guys were didn't like the Lebanese boys, and it was it was bigotry. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll put it straight to you. It was bigotry in those days. I was in the middle because, uh, you know, I'm not white, uh, not Aussie, but I'm not I'm not full Greek either. So my dad was Greek, my Irish. So, and there was there was conflict there. I wasn't, but a lot of the people were sort of intimidated by Lebanese or scared. Did that was that something that you had growing up? Yeah, I did. There was a bit of racism, but I just got on with it. It was one of those things. And um, but Were you reacting to that when you got into trouble or not? No, I didn't react to that. I, I actually um, – there wasn't a lot of Lebanese in Blacktown at the time. Oh, wasn't there? Okay. Uh, and basically I, I just realised sometimes you've got to defend yourself. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I used to – back when I was in, in primary school, my mum used to make sandwiches, the, the bread sandwiches. I used to hide. I was embarrassed at the time because there was no other ethnics uh, eating ethnic food. But then I realised that – they all loved it. So well, they made sandwiches, mate. Don't she, worry about she, that. She made, she made extra and I'd give it to the, to yeah, the other kids. Even, sometimes it comes with melazana, like the, the yeah. eggplant with the garlic because it had been like the night before his dinner, leftovers. Yeah. And uh, yeah, same deal. But I always wanted to eat a meat pie. Like, we know it was crazy. I didn't want to eat that stuff. I, I wanted to eat – Dad wouldn't let me eat Devon. He said, you're not having Devon tomato sauce, like a roll that you could buy in Monday because you couldn't get – when I went to school, you couldn't get – there was no bread on Mondays. So bread didn't get delivered. It could only got delivered on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. By the time Monday came, it was all stale or run out. So we always just ordered our lunch on Monday at school. And, you know, it was two bob or something. It was nothing. It was, I'm talking pounds, shillings and pence, by the way. And yeah. um, and I always wanted to get a pie or a, a Devon sandwich just like all the other kids. And Dad used to go off his head. You're not having a Devon sandwich. That's absolute rubbish, he said. <laughs> and that tomato sauce. He said, I'll make you something. But um, that's all I wanted to have was a meat pie or something, you know. Um, but it's funny, you're right. My mates uh, like what I was eating. 
because they wanted to taste what I was eating. They thought it was and a I'd bit exotic. I love the pie as well. Yeah, they were pretty good. They were pretty well. good. Yeah. I used to love the With pies. the sauce on the top. Sauce. My mum didn't even like me having sauce. She hated sauce. Can I ask you, how do you eat your meat pie? Did I used to take the lid off yeah. and put the sauce in the, in the thing, then eat the lid separately or the top part. Then how I ate the rest of it, I don't know. I was somehow scooped it out or something. But I, I ate, I ate the pie bit separately to the to the top. <laughs> that's probably not the way you're supposed to eat meat pie in those days. But that's how I ate them. I'd peel the top off, put the sauce, and then put the, put top, the top back on it. You're a lot more new than me. That's why you're in the construction industry. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> that's it. And it's funny, you know, because your personality. It's interesting. Your personality. You said you like to fix things or make things right within your family especially. I mean, that probably is what you do in your, your business too. You go around fixing stuff, making things right, making things perfect. Yep. And that personality looked like it override or overrode or somehow you're able to channel that during all the emotion around the tragedy, this particular yeah. day. And uh, and I find it also interesting that you're able to call on your your spirituality and, you know, yep. and ask God, please take the souls. You know, like, and you're able to um, sort of to connect spiritually. Yeah, we've yeah. we've we've got a strong. Uh, my wife and I have really, you know, you know, we've got a strong faith, and we've always instilled that in our kids. And I think it's. I, I find me on a my personal opinion. It's, I think it's important to give that. You know, whatever faith you're at, and it's it's a, it's a great um, it's a great value to to give because you know when things don't work out in life, at least you can look to the heavens and say, "Man, help us." Then it gives you hope. It gives you a bit of hope. It does. Do you think, as a result of the tragedy, that you have got closer to your faith or got deeper into your faith? And have your kids also become that way? Have they adopted that as well? Yeah, my other children. Yeah, we've actually gone in deep. And yeah. and, and and for us, my wife and I always say, every day is a day sooner we're going to be reunited with them. Right. We 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 say, you know what? It's not life after death. It's life after life. And we, we, we take on that attitude that they're actually preparing us a place and it helps us. It helps the kids. It gives them hope. But my youngest boy, sorry, not my youngest, my middle boy, Alex, now he's the eldest. How old is he He's eight. And um, one of the, the lady came up to me, she goes, are you the oldest boy in the family? He goes, no, no, I've got my brother Anthony, but he's in heaven. He doesn't say That's he's cute. dead. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's gone. He doesn't say, oh, he's in heaven, you know, and – and that's that's I think it's important to instill that in families. Instilling those feelings, are they techniques to deal with trauma or is it more about your belief? The techniques, look, I absolutely one hundred percent believe in it. But my my the, the the actual concept behind it, whether you believe or not, it works. It's yeah. been going on for thousands of years, the whole faith story and it helps a society. I'm not saying I'm not putting it on anyone, and I, I don't. I, I live my life. I walk my walk, but I, I absolutely 100% believe in it. But then I look back and I ask, like, what about the guy that doesn't believe? How does it work for him? Well, I mean, if he doesn't believe or not, those values to instill in children, it works for them. You know, yeah. to, to saying that you know what, there's something better, because you know, in this world that we live in, it's not if, it's when we suffer. We're all gonna we're all, we're all gonna go through something in life. I got four sons, and I have a saying which I said. I used to say to my four sons when they're little. In fact, one of one or two of them got a tattoo on their body. But I say, uh, work, play, fight, love, but believe. But I say to them, believe in something. They don't necessarily have to believe in what I believe in, but believe in something. It can be religious spirituality. It could be about nature. It helps you deal with times when you don't know what the fuck the answer is. Like, yeah. And, and if it works, it doesn't really matter. There's no point tearing it apart if it works. 
100%. It works. And it works in a family environment. And that's a small society. Yeah, and that's that's the way I look at faith. It's it's um I look at it as a spiritual bank account. Every act of kindness, every goodness, every time you you pray and stuff, you're depositing in this account. And when the your GFC hits, you can at least cash out. But as long as you don't have if you don't have that and things happen, you know, you're an empty. I like the way you put that. It's um it's very clever. It's also quite logical. And it's hard to attach logic to religion and belief, okay? Particularly where religion sort of can do the wrong thing in relation to the belief. Sometimes, you know, the religious orders, the various parts of religion can sort of let us down or disappoint us. Mm. Um, but that shouldn't take away from the belief itself. The belief is, is is a different thing. But what you just said was very interesting about when times get tough, whatever they might be, it doesn't have to be a GFC. It can be just within your own family like in your case yeah. or just some something that becomes a massive challenge. Um you like to know that you've got the ability to deal with that and one way you can feel like you can deal with it is if you are banking gratitude, banking Correct. kindness. It, it's quite a, you know, they when they, they tell us how to meditate and they say meditate in with gratitude. Um, you are banking something because it actually helps you Absolutely. Go back. If you something gets taken away, you can feel more gratitude towards what you did have. You're and actually conditioning yourself. You can cash out. Yeah, yeah. It's very clever. It's, it's a good, very clever technique. It's it's actually quite brilliant by those like yourself who have the ability to call on it. But when you, as you said earlier, it goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Like people have been playing with this for a long time. But unfortunately, more recently, spiritual belief has become a bit of a, yeah, it's people like, have done damage to it. Yeah, totally. Think. Yeah, people have done more harm than good. I I think, and like for me, my my faith and my, my mentor is Jesus, and I meditate on the Rosary, and and um, that's the way I do. What it's a full meditation. That's perfect. And and I meditate and repetition, and it just helps me, and it keeps me calm. And you know, I look at I look at the Jesus story when he was on the cross, and he says, "Forgive them, Father." Right? He got bolted. He got smashed, and Forgive them, Father, and they know not what they do. And our story of forgiveness, now I understand the signs behind it because you start to realise that forgiveness is is actually for the forgiver more than the forgiver. It's, it's, it's empowering you. You're actually empowering yourself. Yeah, I'm yeah. no longer a slave to you anymore. Mm. You don't control my emotions. So I'm trying to understand because of my experience, I understand the science behind forgiveness, not just the you have to forgive like every faith teaches or our faith, you know, it wasn't just a matter of, oh, well, you know, like he's a really good guy because he's gone and forgiven this dude. and But more, it was more analytical than that, much more analytical than that. You know, you've actually dug deep into the weeds and worked out you're a, a net beneficiary Correct. of being a, the forgiver. It actually gives you the high ground. It puts you in a different position to everybody else. And... uh you know, you're in the guard position as I control my destiny now. Correct. He doesn't control my destiny. So, you know, you've got hold of the gi and you've got control of the, the exactly. whole thing. And that that's quite a good lesson in life. Did you always know that or did you know this event? This event, I we activated our, our, our forgiveness because of our faith. But then I started to realise there was my kids that are in front of me 
And it's sometimes in life you realize trauma happens, but it's not the trauma that affects you. It's it's what you do next. And that whole forgiveness actually has taught my kids how to forgive. And raising kids is contagious. They do what you do, not what you say. A hundred percent. They they copy what they see. Exactly. Not so what they hear. If I have revenge, bitterness, and anger in my soul, they're gonna catch it. And my daughter, Diana, she after three months, she said, Dad, you know what? I forgive him. How but I don't like Diana? him at ten. Ten. I said, that's fine if you don't like him. But I need her to forgive him for her sake, not for his sake. And um now I understand that the whole concept of the spirituality of forgiveness, because I'm actually living it. Don't get me wrong, I cry all the time. We're still grieving, but it would have been a lot worse if my shoulders were heavy with revenge and bitterness and all that. We've actually, my wife and I, you know, we've got a newborn, yep, six week old. Yeah, and we're moving in the right direction. We're coming out of that valley of, of grief together. Can you explain to me? what grief is like? Yeah. Grief, I don't know if I can say it this way. Grief is a is a prick of a person that comes unannounced. You hate him, but you need him. Because the closest I feel to my kids is when I'm crying. That's the new form of love. How does it come about? Does it just hit you all of a sudden? Like- You'll hear a song, it'll hit you. Yeah. You wake up one morning, it comes. I think I said it to a friend of mine, you and you and your son, you'll have energy that you pass bang to each other mm. from the day he was born. This energy is called love. And then it goes back and forth and back and forth. And next minute they disappear. That energy actually reverses and hits you straight in the gut and it becomes grief because it's unexpressed love. That's probably a way I can express that because they're no longer there anymore. So that energy that I used to give to my son, Anthony, Angelina and Sienna and my daughters, Angelina and Sienna, it's no longer there. It actually, it's like a reverse and I have some, like a, like a ball in my stomach that I can't express and, and it becomes grief. And then how do, you, how do you reconcile grief with forgiveness? Like how do the two work together? How do they work together? I think, I think it would have been a lot harder if I didn't forgive. And I had to for the greater good. What's the greater good? Liana, Alex and Michael, Layla, my wife and kids. I've lost half my household. If I have an unforgiving heart, I'll lose all of it. That was how, the, how? Why? Why would? Because I would have went nuts and yeah. chased it and gone for him and all my life I would have had an obsession about how can I get this guy back and, yeah. and I, I wouldn't have been able to thought how can I move forward. I would have just been chasing and chasing and this driver and, you know, the parents and, and you know, vented on them. And reliving it all the time. And exactly. That's, it's, uh, you know, because, you know, obviously when I talk to someone like you, I'm, I'm, you know, haven't, I haven't experienced this, but I'm, I guess everybody's the same, but we're all thinking to ourselves, what would we do? You know, how would we react? Would we be able to take the high ground like you have? Um, um, are we big enough to be able to do what Danny's done. Um, and I, I I quite frankly don't know how I would have reacted, but it's interesting having spoken to you, I probably would react differently after speaking to you today compared to what I would, how I think I would have reacted 
what you've told me here is it makes sense. It's and I'm not a you know, I'm a Catholic school. I'm not particularly reli- religious as a, as a such, but I I do have a spirituality associated with me. Um, you know I do believe, you know whether someone's a son of God or whatever, but I do believe there was a, a dude called Jesus and he was a great rebel and uh, he went against the system that was wrong and and he did some great things and he taught mm. people to be better people. He tried to teach people to be better people. Correct. And he was a passive rebellious person in, in some respects. And I yep. love that about the story, right? I mean I just love that. And I've gone over this a million times in my mind. Um, some people say to me he's a son of God. Other people say there's no such thing as the Son of God. And other religions say he can't be the Son of God. You know, the Muslim faith says it, the Jewish faith says it, but they do revere him as a prophet. Um, you know, I, I'm always trying to reconcile these things in my mind um, intellectually and as opposed to just accepting it, which, you know, everyone's got a different view on things. And maybe when they say he's the Son of God, I think to myself, I wonder if they what they mean by that at the time is he wasn't actually the Son of God but – he represented what the Son of God would be like, and and you know those sorts of things keep going through my mind. I I'm always sort of thrashing this stuff around in my my brain. Because by the way, as a kid, I was an altar boy. Oh really? I, I was an altar boy. Yeah, yeah, I was an altar boy with my best mate Whitey. In fact, we were altar boys right through to about the age of fourteen or fifteen. Um, we used to do mass every Tuesday and every Sunday uh, at St Jerome's in Punchbowl. We even were altar boys at the ordination of a couple of priests. Etc. Like you know, mm. we'll we'll ride into it. Um, and and my mother was Irish Catholic, and she went to church every Sunday to the day she passed away. Um, and sometimes during the week as well. So she was very strict. My dad's Greek Orthodox, a little less so that way. So I had that around me in my life. I've never had to call on it, but interestingly enough, I've never abandoned it. Yeah. Um, yeah either. So. Um, and I'm but I'm always trying to probably more so recently to more trying to reconcile. How this all works, um, not only in my life, but what makes sense to me. I haven't worked yep. it out yet. And it's actually great to talk to people like you yep. because I can see the logic in it as well after talking to you where it becomes really important. Absolutely. It um, plays a big role in our family. And and like I said, for us, our kids are no longer behind us, actually ahead of us. That's and, interesting. That's and, another great and, way and of putting it. I see it. them, you know. My wife and I say, you know what, I think the greatest hour of our life would be the hour we'd pass away, pass into the next life. It's going to be awesome. You know, they're going to be preparing us a place. And like each to their own. I don't yeah, yeah. I don't put any pressure on anyone. That's that's yeah. the, that's our stance yeah, yeah. on it. That's and, your story too, which is great. And that's my story. Yeah, yeah. And it's not necessarily anyone else's story. And but it's know, fascinating. My, my, my kids, you see them, man, they're, they're socially healthy. They're, they're, they've really, because they've got that instilled in them, they, they, there's an understanding that there's another place and that's where they're at. They're not actually at Rookwood Cemetery. They're, they're more alive today than they ever have been. And that helps us move into the, you know, the next chapter of our lives as well. Is this a new chapter now? I mean, you've had a little baby, a little girl. So, like, is this a new chapter? It is a new chapter. We're yeah. very happy. Uh, we've got purpose. You see the kids coming together. And, you know, I took Leon out for dinner that about two nights after the baby was born and, I sat with her. She's now 12, turning 13. I said, Liana, what did you learn? You know, it's been two years now. She says, Dad, I learned from you and Mum never to give up. Because you know what? We had a miscarriage. Between. Between. Yeah. And we still didn't give up. We had another child. And she says, you know, Mum, she really inspires me. I said, Liana, life is going to be tough, sweetie. But you just don't sit in the same spot. You've got to learn to move forward. 
And, you know, as a dad, I feel like I've done my job. She can see, she, she, she'll always be inspired by her parents, no matter what she goes through when she's an adult. And my wife and I, intentionally, we want to make sure that they see that, you know what, we've, we've been through the worst, but we're going to come out of it. It's about as bad as you can get. Yeah. I mean, like, there's not much it's worse. It's a nightmare. You can't get worse than what we've been through. So know? what about the media attention? Um, how did you – what did you think of the media attention when it first started surrounding you, which is what media does? And by the way, you know, I'm in the media. This is media. But media tends to want to find tragedy and sensationalism. And I'm not saying it was sensationalised, but it is, mm. it is a grab. At any stage did you think – stuff this, I'm not going to talk to them? Look, they've been like I'm probably a minority. They've been pretty good with this. They haven't really um, sort of thrown dirt at us or anything like that. Actually, yesterday, actually, funny enough, they someone did ring me about an incident that happened and they tried to – they put the bait in front of us and we said no comment and we walked good. away. So, yeah, there was – Le Montage, you know, in Leichhardt. Yeah, my There's a place. skate park and they used our story saying, we don't want the skate park, look what happened in Oatlands. And and they said, oh, what are your thoughts? They That's said, community. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I said, look, I know the guy, he's a nice guy and I don't want to comment on it. It's not my business. He's entitled to say whatever he wants. And I think they didn't expect me to say that. And good. We closed that, it off. That's quite um, – that's good defensive position to play because all it does is drag you into it. And then, okay, well, the media were fairly supportive um, of you. They certainly didn't say anything that, that I saw that was was not supportive. What about the police and the ambulance? How did how was your relationship with those individuals? They were very supportive. Paramedics, especially the police, they stood by us. They never left our side. They checked in on us every now and then. You, you know, in the midst of this tragedy, we saw the human spirit rise. People became people again. The community really, really looked after us. Yeah, so if, if we could just talk about the community for a moment, how do you feel when you see where the kids passed away, where they were hit, where the accident occurred, like crazy amounts of flowers and cards and notes and just just mental Um how did you feel that how the community – how did you feel about your community? It was probably not even your community. It's broader than your community. It's beyond that. People from everywhere were coming around showing you their sympathetic position and empathetic position too. We, we had people fly from overseas to the funeral, people interstate. It was overwhelming. I didn't, I didn't think it was going to have that, that impact that it did. But it, it did show a lot of the, the Aussie spirit. We – Layla and I, we didn't turn our stove on for six months. People would come with food out the front of our house. In our community in Oatlands, people would would arrange to get the kids ready, take them to school, take them to their activities and drop them back home within the school because my wife and I were, as you can appreciate, we were on our backs hmm. for six months. We were lost. We didn't know what to do and, you know, it's as, 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 as positive as I might sound, it was – the grief was – smashed us so we 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 saw this side of a community that that really looked after us dropping off we couldn't even go to coles how do, how do i get to coles everything at coles reminded me of my kids and and they really stepped up and how do you do you think 
I don't mean you have to repay them, but do you feel indebted? We can we can never repay the community, but but what we have done, we've you know some families we have invited over and thanked them personally. We're still getting flowers from the newborn as well, and there's nothing we can do to repay them. And I think our story of forgiveness is something that that's impacted their lives. I know that men have come up to me, become better dads, and have been inspired by our story. Mothers better parents and understood, you know, how to fill their kids' love tanks a lot better. Because it's not just about how do I deal with grief. That's one part of it. But it's about how you build your bank account, these sorts the of things that you're account, talking about. Yeah. You know, like th- these are important. And, uh, you know, that, that's actually a really good message. And you've you've started up a charity. My wife and I, we, we were at uh, Parliament House. They, they implemented a new law called the Four Angels Law. If someone gets done for mid-range, before it was illegal, mid-range alcohol. Yep. Before it was illegal to be drug tested. Now they can drug test them. And in a nutshell, it's if they get done for drugs and mid-range, mid-range. alcohol, it's like a quadruple charge. Right. So we were there and I remember Ronaldo goes, can I see? The premier at the time was Gladys. Gladys, we saw her and, and we asked her, can we have an I forgive day? on the day of the tragedy in honour of the children. And, you know, she said we'd be honoured to do that. So that day was a conversation on forgiveness because we were understanding that forgiveness is for the forgiver more than for forgiven. And I remember that the 2021, 1st of February, we had the launch. Gladys came. She had Dib, Mark Latham, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister and his family and other dignitaries came as well, and we launched it. And it's actually starting to grow. It became now I Forgive Week. We've had communities come and reach out to us. We've had um, with I Forgive now, There's a we're looking at a prison program, conversation on forgiveness, people forgiving each other in prison. Within the prison. Yeah, within the prisons and, and, and people forgiving their families and their loved ones for all the hurt and forgiving themselves as well. It's important as well. A lot of people haven't, haven't forgiven themselves. We've actually got the Islamic community now. We had 200 imams on I Forgive Friday. Wow. Talk about forgiveness. 200? Yeah, supporting. Uh, we had I Forgive Sabbath. We had over, you know, a, a lot of rabbis, I can't give you the exact figure, spoke um, about forgiveness that, that week on I Forgive Week at the synagogues. And then we've got I Forgive Sunday, all the churches Christian churches. All the Christian, over a thousand churches spoke about forgiveness. Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox. And um, now we've been talking to the indigenous community about forgiveness and what it looks like for them. I'm actually actually interested in the indigenous community. Is is, is that a concept like that, that similar to the way, say, you know, Christians might do it or Muslims or Jews, etc.? I think I want to, I've reached out and said, you know, how does an Aboriginal forgive like spiritually what does it look like you know before in their past how does it work and what's the what's the structure of it just to understand and i've actually spoken about you know some communities in the indigenous speaking about you know what does forgiveness look like for them as well it's interesting isn't it? with elders yeah, yeah i've been talking to a few key people as well. So it's in negotiations. Yeah, good. At the moment, I've reached out to um, the gay community to come yep. in with I Forgive. Yep. 
So all it is at the moment, it's um, it's an I forgive movement. It's it's a movement yeah. about forgiveness. And let me tell you something, Mark. For as long as you know, forgiveness is becoming this new, the new gratitude uh, affirmation. Because if you have an unforgiving heart and you try and meditate and you try and be grateful and all, it doesn't work. It's like a kink in a hose with your spirituality. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. It, 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 you need to have that. You need to let go because it takes more courage to forgive. Do you get the whole concept of forgiveness out of the last two sentences of the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses. As, as we, we forgive those who trespass against us. Yes. It became part of my makeup. And then I, then I look back and I see the story of Jesus where he got bolted, spat on. He hung up on the cross. They were all laughing at him. His last words were, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And if you had it to say it in today's terms, I heard Eckhart Tolle say it. He says, forgive them, Father, for they are unconscious. And a lot of people hurt people because they are unconscious. They don't realise what they're doing. But they're not thinking about it. No. They're being just reactive or instinctive. Yeah. Instinctive where they don't have a spiritual um, process and belief instilled into their brain already. Correct. If you know you're going to do something and it's going to really hurt that person, spiritually you'd know not to do it then. Yeah. But they don't know. Yeah, because they haven't been exposed to it. Exactly. A very famous Jesuit who was a friend of mine, I once asked him, I said to him, I can say it now because he's passed away, a Jesuit priest he was, and I said to him, can you tell me something like when you pray to God, is it okay if I ask God for something? Like or is he going to say, listen, dude, you've got too much, you're not getting ahead of getting more or whatever, you know. Like, is, is it okay to say, listen, I really want this deal to go through. Can you help me? You know, because God's all-powerful. Mm. And he can do everything. So you can do that and plus everything else he's been asked. I asked him that question. This is only maybe about six or seven years ago. And to my amazement, he said to me, I want you to recite the Lord's Prayer to me. And I started reciting. And when I got to the part where I said, give us this day our daily bread, he said to stop. He said, what do you think that means? Give us this day our daily bread. And I said, well, I thought it was some reference to the communion or something along those those lines when you go to church on Sunday you get Holy Communion. He said, no, no, as in Jesuits being very practical but also very bright and, and have a deep understanding of, of the, the religion, he said, give us this day our daily bread means basically whatever it is you need. What do I need today? And if I need the deal to be, to be done. It'll get done. It'll get done. He said, Mark, be practical. It's okay to say, give us this day of daily bread. In other words, give me what it is I need. And there's nothing wrong with asking for it as long as you have gratitude in relation to getting it. And he said, you might not get it. You he might said, say no. But you can ask for it. There's nothing wrong with asking for it. And these are all very, very well-honed, well-refined techniques that – Religious institutions have worked out work, not just Catholics or Jews or Muslims or Buddhists. Were going even back before that. You can go back into you know Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all those guys. And you know if you want to talk about the Greek gods or the you yep. know they're all the same. It's the same story because it all concept. works. It all works and it works. And it's very important. And it's and what's interesting is we don't think enough about techniques that work for us during trauma and even less than trauma, just stress, 
and 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 what can we call on? What, where do we get our hope from? And um, you know, you've you've given us a, this is a great lesson for all of us. And I forgive day is not just about me forgiving, but it's also about us remembering, or you helping us remember all the reasons why forgiveness actually helps us deal with trauma and stress. As you said, the forgiver gets a big advantage. Forgiving yourself, if you can forgive yourself, if everyone could forgive themselves, man, that's that's the biggest suicide prevention. You think about the person that has death by suicide. What do you think is going through his head? Guilt. Guilt. Where's Regrets. Guilt? Regrets. Anger. Upset. Mm. If he was able Poison. to have the tools of forgiveness and be able to say, you know what, I value myself enough and I forgive myself for everything I've done in my past, I think there'd be a lot less attempts of suicide. Do we live in a day these days of blame and guilt? Do you think there's too much of that, you know, quickly got to find a reason to blame that person for something or other? Yeah, we do. We live in a world of too much blame and guilt. Hate, blame, guilt. We just go straight there. Yeah. We don't rise above and say, okay, wait a minute, let's let's look at some other ways of doing things. It's too easy to blame, isn't it? It's just easy. It, uh, yeah. Do you think that's all part of where we're going with, um, you know, our lives, that everything's instantaneous, is not really well thought through, it's more about instinctive responses? I mean, blame is such an easy instinct to use. It's your fault. You know, there's a problem with COVID, it's your fault. Um, there's no empathy. No, no empathy. Nothing at all. So you're going to be pushing, you're, you know, your I forgive movement is going to effectively has to push against this. Exactly. We, we need to look at, okay, why forgive? Why would you forgive? You know, people look at forgiveness in a way where they say, you know what, I'm not going to forgive him. He doesn't deserve it. But you deserve peace. Yeah. You deserve peace. That's really interesting. You know what I just thought of then too? When you were saying this and uh, 2,000 years ago and the scribes and Pharisees in those days in that period were about blame and we're about persecution. He caused a problem. He's a rebel. He's causing me a problem politically. I'm blaming him. Let's string him up. And then a whole movement went against that. Mm-hmm. And whilst we are much more advanced than we were 2,000 years ago, technologically, the same instincts are coming out of us. And, in fact, the technology is actually driving these instincts to some extent. They're especially with kids. it, actually. Totally. And this whole movement is a good movement. It's a great movement. It's a really important movement for us to have as a society. Let me tell you, man, people are yearning for this. People are trying to understand this whole forgiveness piece. They're hungry for it. All walks of life, everyone, they yep, we want to be a part of this. We want to understand it. Because you see families, they're just broken down where the brother, I remember I had a friend of mine. His kids don't talk to each other. They hate each other. So to him, Tell me about your relationship with my, my your brother. He goes, oh, f him. I don't want you know. I don't talk to him. We didn't speak here. I go, well, what do you want, what do you want them to do? They actually you've taught them how to be unforgiving. Obviously, they're going to turn on each other, and that's the message I want to try and teach people. Mate, listen, there's a greater good. You might not talk to your brother, but you got these kids in front of you. They're watching you. Are you going to accept them not talking to each other when they're older? So that's where the whole forgiveness piece sits for me. It's it's become a mission for you to some extent. I can feel it. Yes, you become a missionary in this regard. Absolutely, it's a humanitarian message. Yeah, you know, well. it's totally is totally is. I don't think we can not proceed into discussing the support you received from some of our leaders. What was your experience at the top level? Gladys came 
to the funeral. She met up with us when I needed to see her. She's a beautiful lady. Um, she came to the one-year mass, to my one, with our kids, to Bridget's daughter's one-year mass, and she came to the I Forgive launch as well. Very supportive and very loving. She's very nurturing. And she's a good woman. She's a very nice person. And, you know, I had Minister Dib, Jihad Dib as well, member for Lekemba. Yep. He's been by our side for a long, long time. And we've become actually friends with him as well. And he always checks in on me and says, G'day. Our Prime Minister, Mr. Scott Morrison, he's been outstanding. If I just shared with you the things he's done off camera, you'd think, well, this is our Prime Minister. You know, on the on the day of the funeral, his wife Jennifer came down and paid her respects. Then he invited us over, myself, Layla, Bridget, Craig, to his place. And you know what? He was you could see he was touched by the whole story and he, he was very supportive. I remember Father's Day. I was at Rookwood Cemetery. It was the first year crying and upset and thinking about the kids. Mate, he messages me, Danny, I'm thinking of you today on Father's Day. That's like the middle of the pandemic too. That's September. Yeah. It was very tough. Then he's got a picture of my kids in his office. Really? As well. He said oh, to wow. Father, he goes, Danny, it's a beautiful picture. He put it in his little pocket. The day of the sentencing, they sentenced the driver I walked out of court and he was the first person to call me. He said, Danny, nothing will ever replace your kids. But it was the biggest manslaughter, 28 years manslaughter sentence that they've ever given out. He goes, but this sentencing was a good sentencing. Who does that? That's our prime minister. This is stuff he does off camera. Yeah, he's not trying to do it because he wants to, no. to get media out of it. A friend of mine, he was pushing his son from Sydney to Canberra to raise money. He's got that Duchenne muscular. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which normally most kids don't go beyond 19 years of age. Yes. Ellie. Ellie I know Ellie. I know. I've, yeah. I've, I've supported that charity in the past. Mate, he texted me. I'd, he was getting there. And he, by was, the way, his son is still a, you know, still doing well. So it's, it's yes, pretty well. Yes, a very nice man actually. It's he amazing. reached out as well. He texted me. He goes, am I able to meet the Prime Minister? He was going to Canberra. I messaged Scott. I said, Scott, do you mind if my friend of mine's pushing his son? He's raising money. And you know what? He met him. Just said, look, no worries. I'll, you know, if I've got time, I'll go and say good day. And he, he was able to do it. Off, and this is the stuff, like I said, that they, he does off camera. That's why when I see on the news of this whole shaming business yeah. on the Prime Minister, it's sad what they're doing. It's not, it's not right. It's not his character. He's not anti-Lebanese. He actually loved Lebanon. Yeah. He told me I had the time of my life. and oh, He's been to Lebanon? Yeah. Wow. He had a really good time. He was been to Lebanon. Yeah. And he would go back in a heartbeat with the family, like, you know, later on in life. He didn't find it bad and he's not anti-Lebanese. He's got a lot of people that love him in the Lebanese community as well and he loves them as well. So I think it's just the hype of the elections, I think. That's what they do. I'm glad you put that into perspective because I wasn't aware of that. He's like a normal person. He's one of us. We we got, had our house broken into at the time. You serious? About six, eight months after the tragedy, Layla was at home and someone had run upstairs, taken some 
jewelry and bolted out. It was all over the news. His wife, Jen, rings Layla and says, listen, I'm going to come and stay over at your place tonight. It's just so you can feel safe. How humbling is that, like, to see the Prime Minister's wife reach out? We said, look, that's okay. Don't trouble yourself. But she meant it from all her heart that she wanted to make sure that Layla was okay. They don't have to do that. They're already busy with their lifestyle and that. But but this is something from the heart. They're genuine people. Well, that's... That's a great revelation um, from my point of view. Um, I don't know Jen. I'm, I've met her, but I don't know her. I'm a, I know the Prime Minister. And uh, he comes across to me as a, a genuine sort of person. Like he's he's pretty real, but it's hard to be real in politics, especially when you're getting smashed left, right and centre, um, you know, and your your whole career's on the line <laughs> based on uh, what you might have said or what someone else might have said or done that probably had no relationship back to you whatsoever. Um, and unfortunately, that's the way the world is at the moment. And, and, and it, I guess you've got to cop it sweet. If you want to play that game, you've got to cop it. But still, I, it's interesting to hear someone with a completely different point of view about Scott Morrison and Jenny Morrison, not the Prime Minister, the no. two people. We'll take the Prime Minister hat off and I'll tell you two people two that people. I know. And, mate, they're awesome. They've been uh, very kind, very loving, and sometimes you just see what this what they're doing out there in the media. It's it's sad that we remember we just spoke about blaming, blaming, yeah. blaming. We went through the worst. This is the worst time to be a prime minister. Oh. and I think compared to the rest of the world, we're probably top five in the world. People are blaming him for the bad for the for the for the the bad stuff that's happened. But why don't we blame him for the good stuff as well? Yeah. Why don't we say, look, you know, all the all the positive stuff that's happened uh, coming out of COVID? Because we don't look at positive stuff. That's the problem. The media environment likes to feed this negativity, because and it's not and it's not the media's fault. It's because the consumers are interested in negativity. That, that sells. That sells. They 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 like negativity. And I don't. I actually don't understand. Mind you, if everybody's sort of talking about you know uh, roses and pansies and glowing things, maybe <laughs> the news doesn't become the news anymore. You know, human nature. We love drama. Yeah, we're wired for it because it gets our attention. Um, because it could be something that relates to us. Um, otherwise, good news. Oh, okay, cool. I'm happy with that. Kumbaya. <laughs> sit around. Let's. Uh, have a beer or something like that. Um, Danny, I, I, you've told me some things and you've expressed some things to me which I, to be frank with you, um, I was completely unprepared for. I, I didn't realise that our conversation would go to where it went to. No, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, probably more importantly from my point of view, I've learned something. Thank I've learned something about you but I've learned something for me and I'm being very selfish in that regard but I've learned something about the logic of spirituality and – I like your term, the forgiver. Um, there's always something in it for the forgiver. And I think that's a really important thing for, to be remembered. But that's something I've learned today. Danny Abdullah. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. 
Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a Mentored Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.